0: Welcome to Top Docs, I'm Mike Merrill.
1: And I'm Ken Jacobson.
0: Today, Ken had a chance to speak with W. Kamau Bell about his new documentary, We Need to Talk About Cosby.
1: This is a fascinating new four-part docuseries on Showtime. It had its world premiere at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, and now it can be seen on the Showtime television network and on the Showtime streaming network. W. Kamau Bell is the Emmy award-winning executive producer and host of United Shades of America, which recently completed its sixth season on CNN. Previously, he hosted the weekly stand-up comedy series, Totally Biased, with W. Kamau Bell, which first aired on FX. He's a celebrated stand-up comic, author, and podcast host. His podcast with Kevin Avery, Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period, has been going since 2014.
0: First of all, he's a great talker. You can tell he's a performer. He brings all those skills to bear when he talks. He modulates his voice. He is funny. He knows when to laugh. He's had the experience now in a couple of different formats, including not just comedy, but he's been a producer for CNN. You know, he's put together news programs. You can feel that in the series, and you can feel that in his answers to your questions about what his intentions were and how he was achieving his goals.
1: I thought it was interesting how modest he was about this being his first documentary. And that's interesting given how accomplished it is. I mean, he and his producers, I thought, really did a terrific job with this series. And what's interesting is it's both personal. He speaks personally in the documentary about how Bill Cosby was a hero of his growing up there are a number of times when he just kind of steps out of the director's chair to speak to us directly as, you know, we talked about audience for the film. So like the title is, we need to talk about Cosby. Who is the we? And he is so adept, really, I think as good or better than anybody about addressing the issue of audience. Who am I talking to with this documentary? Who am I envisioning is going to be watching this and what are they gonna be getting out of it? And what are they gonna be asking me as the director of this? So I love the fact that he's both personal and operating on the societal level equally effectively.
0: And you've got to think that some of that ability to speak to the audience again, comes from his stand-up experience. He's accustomed to addressing the audience directly. I saw him years ago in another innovative space where he, at a major ed tech conference, delivered a PowerPoint, I believe called How to End Racism in Under an Hour, in which he combined traditional PowerPoint techniques with comedy. Kind of a learning ground for some of the ability to marry up visuals with the sensibility of a stand-up comedian.
1: The other thing that really stood out for me, both in the film and then in talking to him, is the treatment of survivors in the documentary. They were not only incredibly respectful and sensitive as a production team to the survivors, but they were also really smart and strategic in how those interviews were used in the series and how they thought about, okay, how are we going to tell the stories of these survivors to make them experts in their fields rather than just this flat two-dimensional, I survived, sexual abuse or rape from Bill Cosby. And it was just incredibly effective and powerful and just really strategic because it makes those women and their stories hard to ignore and also just so damning of Bill Cosby.
0: If you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow us on whichever podcast platform you favor. Coming up is Ken's conversation with W. Kamau Bell about we need to talk about Cosby.
1: W. Kamau Bell, welcome to Top Docs. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the title. We need to talk about Cosby. First of all, who in your mind is the we? (laughs) That's a good question because
2: I know automatically it's not an all-encompassing we. It is the we who feel like we need to talk about Cosby. I think the title is an invitation to a conversation. And if it's not your conversation, then you don't have to come to the table. It's not a subpoena. What I learned as soon as we put the trailer out, I could see people embracing the title like, oh, yes, we do need, or I was waiting for somebody to have this conversation, or I'm glad that we can finally have this conversation. So there clearly are a pretty good percentage of people who are like ready for this conversation but didn't know where to have it.
1: Obviously, there are different audiences for the film. There's the general audience of everybody in America who's familiar with Bill Cosby. And then there's a more specific audience of black people in America. How did you approach the different audiences while you were conceiving of and constructing the film? One of
2: the things that my CNN show United Shades of America has taught me is that you can make a show and in the middle of the show talk to specific audiences. So I can make a show about gangs in Chicago, which we did on United Shades of America. And sometimes I can be talking generally to the whole audience of the show. And sometimes I can be like, and Black people, we know, and then Black people watching know I'm talking to them. And people who are not Black watching know that, oh, this may not be for me. So I don't have to necessarily weigh in on this. I can just let them have this conversation. So I think United States of America has taught me that it's capable, even in one project, to address multiple audiences. I think it's 100% clear, even if you don't see me in the project, but which you do at the early, uh, you see who is directing it, that this is from a Black man's voice. So that means that a lot of this perspective is going to be a black man who in his lived black life has perspectives on this that if you don't have a lived black experience you may not understand so for example there's a part in the doc where we talk about was this whole thing about bill cosby trying to buy nbc now for a large of the audience they're like what are you talking about why are you bringing this up but for black people They know that's a thing that we have talked about. Is this about how Cosby tried to buy NBC and they took him down? I think there's lots for everybody in this, but certainly there are moments where it's like the hand of the creator is present of the black man who was born in the early 70s, who's a stand up comic.
1: I know there were multiple people you approached to be in the series and they said no, or maybe more accurately, they said no fucking way. I don't know. Uh, You just
2: didn't respond. I think if that was the no fucking way. It was just you just didn't hear back.
1: Rather than call them out by name, which would be fun, but yeah, um, it would
2: be it would be a lot of fun. We could get a lot of headlines. We'd break some news. Yeah.
1: But rather than do that, what were some of the reasons that people gave anonymously for not wanting to talk to you?
2: You know, I think there's a general sense that even if you've gone on the record about this in the past, whatever side you've gone on the record on this about you don't feel like there's a way through this conversation where you don't lose people. So especially if you are like a high profile entertainer, could be black or white or or any race, or if you're somebody who actually worked closely with Bill Cosby and is identified as somebody who's worked closely with Cosby, there's no way to thread that needle in a way where you're not gonna lose people. And also forget lose people, you're gonna suffer verbal social media attacks that it's just like, why do I wanna do that? And I understand that like, it's going to put me out there in a way that I'm going to have to deal with people's opinions about my opinion. And I just don't, I don't need to do this. And also I had not done anything like this before. So maybe they weren't sure that I was the guy to do it.
1: I think the series is proof that you were.
2: I still feel like if this is the use of sports analogy, I don't know that I'm at the, maybe it's the sixth inning. I don't know. I don't know that the game is over yet.
1: The Bill Cosby story runs broad and, and deep in the culture, but it's also one that has particular resonance and significance in the stand-up comedy world. Cosby was a very influential stand-up comic, of course. He was one of the first stand-up comics to have a hugely successful sitcom. Hannibal Burris famously called out Cosby as a rapist in a stand-up set in 2014. As a stand-up comic yourself, making this film, how did you navigate through the minefield of Bill Cosby as an icon and hero within and to the stand-up community?
2: I think that's still to be determined. I think that on some level, i said this to a lot of people as I worked on, I go, I don't know if I'm going to be allowed to be a stand-up comic after this anymore. Because there is sort of a sense of like, am I going to be seen as like, you know, the cop who decided to work for Internal Affairs? I don't know. Am I going to lose a percentage of my audience that thought they liked me and now thinks they don't like me? But also, let's be clear, a lot of this is framed around the fact that because of COVID, I haven't done stand-up in like probably three years now. Just because my daughter was born, and so I slowed down, and I was like, well, I'll be back in 2020. (laughs) So that didn't happen. I do sort of feel like I don't know what my life as a stand-up comic is going to be going forward. And I still don't know generally how the community of comedy sees me right now. That's why I'm saying we're still not through this yet. Showtime has only aired two of the episodes. There's two more to go. All I could do is go look. Like with the Hannibal thing, I was very like clear about like, I know Hannibal doesn't want to talk about this. He's made that clear that he wants to just move on and have his career, which he's done very successfully. And I admire him for that. I have been friendly with Hannibal in the past. I don't know where that stands now. Hopefully we are still friendly. I I still admire him and appreciate what he did. But in that section where I talked about him, I really worked hard to like not make it a thing where it was like, now go everybody run and talk to him. I tried to make it clear that this guy doesn't want to talk about this. He is okay if we use this for whatever we want to use it for, but this is not his move. This is not a career move for him. And I don't know. I think it's entirely possible that there are stand-up comics who believe that Cosby sexually assaulted and raped these over 60 women, but also don't want to mess with it anymore because the streets are hot around me. What was his influence on you as a stand-up comic? I think he was, in many ways, my original significant influence. It's sort of hard to tease apart, like, between him and Eddie Murphy, who was more influential because I got to them both at a very young age. Like I watched Eddie Murphy, uh, Delirious way too young, (laughs) But but my mom let me watch it. And I watched Bill Cosby himself somewhere around that same time. And it was very clear to me that these guys were both great. These are black men. They are both funny. I want to be funny. I am inspired by both of them. But Bill Cosby himself, I remember even at the time as a 10, 11 year old, watching bill Cosby himself and just being like clearly this is a different level of stand-up comedy and i don't know that i thought those words but you could just tell that this is a higher level now i would use the word masterclass and how to be a stand-up comic and that he's doing things i mean maybe as a kid i just saw this he's doing things that i've never seen another comic do as simple as sitting in a chair and he's not rushing there's never a sense that like i gotta get to the end of the bit because i gotta get to the closer or i gotta get all the tags in it's super slow paced, but also hilarious. So I think that for me, the thing I remember taking away from that is you can be smart and funny in equal measure. Cause the thing about Bill Cosby himself and Bill Cosby's career is that he was never doing what performers do where he was always the butt of the joke, or it was about how he wasn't that smart. It was always about how I am smart, but I'm sometimes overwhelmed by my family. But it doesn't mean I'm not smart. That's what the thing I learned is that you could be smart, but also silly. Like when you look at the bits he did, like the, the dentist and chocolate cake, he's not afraid of being silly. He, he doesn't think being silly blunts his smartness.
1: One of the sort of high wire acts of the series is you're both tracking Cosby's the course of his career, which is an amazing career. And then you're introducing these horrifying stories of sexual abuse and rape. I think the first testimonial comes toward the end of episode one. It's with Victoria Valentino, who's a former Playboy bunny and playmate, who tells the story of how Cosby raped her. It's a very thorough story. It has a story arc. There are lots of details. And the pacing is very different from what we've seen before. The cutting style up to this point has been more, you know, your standard archival clips and shorter clips. As the director of this series, first of all, how did you decide which survivors you wanted to include in the film? And how did you decide how you wanted those individuals and their stories to be represented? First of all, the survivors decided. There's over 60 women
2: we reached out to, many more than are in the doc, and many of them who've been quite public about telling their story, a lot of them are just done and I understand. They did their service, they stand by what they said, they feel like they've gone on record about it enough, and they also just want to live their lives. So really, it came down to the ones who said yes, but also said yes to this specific type of documentary, because we were very clear with them, it's not just about the assault. One of the documentaries that inspired me was Dream Hampton Surviving R. Kelly. And if you watch that, you may not even know what all of the hit songs are from R. Kelly because the doc is not really trying to spend a lot of time with that. The doc is like, this is an active crime scene. We need to close the case. And I respect that. I understand why they did it that way. But for me, it was like you had to sort of tell them, look, this is not surviving R. Kelly. This is a little bit surviving R. Kelly, but a little bit. The other doc that inspired it was Ezra Edelman's O.J. Simpson Made in America where we're gonna talk about his life and his career achievements. And some of that stuff is gonna come off positive. Do you wanna be in this frame? And so some of them I think were like, and this is Geraldine Porras, who was the producer who did most of the outreach on this. we were like, I I would do a doc, but I'm not doing that, understandable. And then I think the thing that basically pulled some of them in or that they decided they wanted to do it is because they knew my work. And so they're like, I am already a fan of United Shades of America. I already know his work. If anybody can pull this off, maybe it's him. So I think a lot of it was about them buying into I don't know if this is going to work, but I trust this guy, which really helped me as an interviewer, because then you're sitting with somebody who's actually excited to talk to me generally, you know, and we can do some like United Shades questions and we can do some get to know you. And most of United Shades, the beginning of the interview is you just get to know you. And then the approach was like, and this was from the very beginning before we had any survivor's degree to do it. It was like I was really clear that like I want to figure out how to get these women in here as much as possible as experts in their field before you know that they were assaulted or raped by Bill Cosby. So Victoria Valentino, I think is the best example of that, that the first time she shows up and the, for a large part of the doc, she is just an expert on Playboy culture. You have their Playboy magazine and Playboy club. Some people are gonna know who she is because she has been very public about telling her story, but a large part of the audience is like, if she had done nothing else, she would have contributed to the doc. But then by the time at the end, when we reveal her to be a survivor, I think it lands harder because you already like her and you already trust her. Oh, of course they're talking to this woman. She's an expert in Playboy culture and Playboy magazine. And you play her off against Gloria Hendry and Gloria Hendry's a black woman. So there's this very great tennis match they have about is Playboy feminist. And she doesn't seem fragile and she doesn't seem like a prude or whatever sort of things people put on survivors of sexual assault. She seems like a reliable teller of her own story. The way that it was cut, which I like to talk about, There was this idea that you get the first cut from the editor and it's long, and you go, maybe we'll do some light recree, which I didn't want to do, or maybe we'll do some sort of archival, some Getty footage, or we'll put more music in it. But when we played it as it was, with no music and no archival and no recree, which I'm really glad we steer clear of, it was just clear it was so powerful because it was very different from what you'd seen in the first three quarters of the doc, and it just sort of told you, slow down. And it allowed her to tell we didn't know the story about her son until I had the conversation with her. And that story informs her experience with Bill Cosby so much that it was like, why would you cut this out? And then we sent it to Showtime with the idea that like, they're probably going to tell us to put some music under this and cut this down. And from the very beginning, they're like, we've never seen anything exactly work this way keep going in this direction, which I really appreciated because it just felt like it would have been wrong to cut it shorter or to put a lot of music behind it or to put a lot of archival just to jazz it up. And so Showtime really was a great partner.
1: That's interesting. You bring up that example of Victoria's son and how he drowned, because as I was watching the film initially, I was like, you know, this is a very sad story. And it's the kind of story that in 99.9% of the documentaries probably would have ended up on the cutting room floor. But I'm so glad that it's in here. Because it really does allow you to get to know her as a person and give her life a context.
2: Even on the best of circumstances, sometimes these survivors, and survivors in general, are reduced to the moment of the incident. And you don't know... What kind of emotional life or life they were leading before then. It's just about tell me about the incident so we can all determine whether or not this happened or not. We can all judge your story. And for me, it was very clear that, like, if you don't walk into this incident with her from where she came from and what was going on in her life, then it feels a lot more prepared for like a he said, she said thing. I didn't want the doc to be that.
1: There's been a lot of discussion in the documentary field about trauma and the dangers of re traumatizing survivors in interviews. What precautions did you take prior to these women speaking with you or on the set itself to ensure that that they felt safe?
2: First of all, these women have all done so much. The ones who sat down and talked to us for the most part, there was only one, I think, who had never really I outed herself before. She had been a Jane Doe in trial, Stacey Pinkerton. But they have all done this work and been activists with this work for a number of years now. Like we talk about the statute of limitation laws that they're overturning. So they are all in control of their stories. I just want to be clear about that. And for most of these people, well, for all of them, it happened a long time ago. It doesn't mean you can't be re-traumatized, but it does mean that they have like done a lot of work to live with these stories. And as in the Victoria Valentino case, the time she cried was when she was talking about her son, not talking about Cosby. But having said that, I think there is a part of, we open up on, tell me about your life, where'd you grow up, all these things to sort of table set, but also where you find out things you didn't know. Uh, Were you a fan of Bill Cosby? Were you not? The conversation starts out like a broad funnel. And then as you sort of get down to the Bill Cosby events, it really does become like, okay, we're about to get into that. I feel like it's important to not blindside them with a question so they can have that moment of like, all right, this is what we're here for. And we've been here for 45 minutes or a half hour. So there's been a warm up time. And then it becomes like, at any point letting them know, you could not answer a question. You can say, I don't wanna go into that. And we left one of that in there with Lily Bernard, when she says, I don't really wanna go through a timeline of the events, just to show like, not everybody here wants to do this the same way. And it was about respecting her. And when she said that it was like, okay. Now, in fact, she actually did later tell some things, but we were like, I think we wanna keep it the way she sort of initially said it. I don't wanna go through the timeline of the events. But it was really about knowing, and this is, again, years of United Shades, but also our, our showrunner, Katie King, Geraldine Porras, our producer, Kelly Rafferty, who's also a producer. Like, they all have done a lot of work with the survivors studying this. So it's really not a thing that anybody is taking lightly. For example, we had the, the conceit of the iPad. Can I hand you an iPad and show you a clip of Bill Cosby's career? Sometimes it was clear, don't do that. Like, don't, this is not, this person is not going to want that. And I'm not going to try to get them to do something. It's not about getting the reaction. So we'll just skip it today.
1: It really felt like everyone was treated with respect and treated as an individual.
2: That was what the whole thing was. If there's anybody who, when we were making this, that was like concerned about their reactions to the doc, it was them because they had given up their time. And they all can tell you stories where they felt like they were used by the
1: media before. Let's talk about The Cosby Show, which comes... About midway through the series, certainly the Cosby show is the crowning achievement of Cosby's career. It's the thing that propelled him from star to American cultural icon, quote America's dad, if you will. Um,
2: Well, and we did.
1: You know, for me, it's the moment in the documentary when this story is transformed from being one about one entertainer slash predator to being about us. So it's where the, the we comes into it the most. We're the ones tuning in every week. We're the ones who made it the number one show on TV. It's interesting how you portray the show. One of the things that you do is you show a clip from, I think it's the happy anniversary episode in which the Huxtable family dances and lip syncs to Nighttime is the Right Time by Ray Charles. Can you talk about why you chose that clip to focus on?
2: As someone who was born in the early 70s, by the time the Cosby show premieres in 84, I was 11 years old. And I was also a huge comedy fan and huge Cosby fan. There was a certain segment of black people who were like, oh, Cosby's got a show, we gotta be there for him. Not even for us, we have to support him. And he's gonna be good, cause he's always good. But we also know that, that America's racist, TV is racist. If we don't show up in numbers, they, this show might get canceled in the first episode. So it's sort of an activation week after week, as I say, I was watching that show. And there's so many classic moments, but I think if you were to talk to people of my generation, specifically black people who are fans of the Cosby show, and said, name your three favorite clips from the Cosby show, there might be a bunch of other clips that are thrown there. But it's pretty universal that nighttime is the right time is going to be named by everybody. First of all, it's not something TV did. Like in Cosby show did this a lot like performance pieces that aren't really like based on the good of the performance. It's based on your connection to this family. Their performance of Nighttime is the Right Time, they're dancing, but it's the way a family dances. It's not super synchronized. It's not like that thing on TV Now where suddenly there's a musical number in the middle of a sitcom, but it's super high quality and it's choreographed by a -a Tonya-winning choreographer, although maybe Debbie Allen did choreograph it, but it feels like you're at a family's house and your family's house and it's a song ray charles he's an american icon but he's specifically a black icon and the fact they're singing that song and it's not being performed for the audience it's being performed for the grandparents the elders it just feels like super inside like it's inside of a super black frame it's not just like this family's performing it's how they're performing it's who they're performing for it's the music they're lip-syncing and it's also the generosity of bill Cosby, performer to give Rudy the best part, which is not what a standup comic normally does. So there, it's just a very layered text. And it, it is just something that is designed for all of us to sit back and enjoy, but as a black person, you feel like you're being steeped in blackness in that scene in a way that no show had ever done before. And it's not about the pain of blackness, like a lot of black shows, it's about the joy of blackness, which a lot of shows even starring a black cast didn't do very well.
1: It also, of course, creates this poignancy and heightens the sense of betrayal that people feel when they later find out what Cosby has been doing.
2: Yeah, I think one of my key lines, there's all these key lines that our interviewees say from the series that stick with me. And one is after that one, she's a friend of mine, Professor Danielle Morgan from Santa Clara University says, watching it is hard because you can't help but think about the show and connect to it. But then you start to think about what really happened as he says, and the reality is the reality. And I just always felt like that was just a simple sort of like almost like a haiku. Like the reality is the reality. You cannot deny the reality. Even as you look at that clip and your face lights up, as soon as it's over, the reality sinks back in.
1: When did you become convinced that these stories about Cosby were true? You know, it's interesting. I I can't say when X Survivor came
2: out, I became convinced. Here's what I do know. When Hannibal told the joke about Cosby basically... Indicting Cosby for his, for being a hypocrite. I was one of those people who was like, oh yeah, that is true. I have heard these stories. Wow. It's weird that I haven't put all this together before. Like I think that sort of the America's dad, black America's scold and accused of rape, like all those things sort of existed in separate corners of my brain, but the rape one was in a small part. It didn't take up as much space as the other ones. And when he put it all together, some people I think were like, what is he talking about? I was not one of those people. I had heard those stories by then. I don't know when I started hearing those stories, but as someone who was paying attention to the news, they were coming out. But I think we have to remember the news cycle was so different then that it just came out on the news that happened at six o'clock in your hometown or whatever. Or maybe it was on CNN, but it wasn't like we were in the middle of a 24 hour news cycle the way we are now. And so I think it was easy to put things in different corners of your brain and not let them intersect. So you could then see him on The Tonight Show and forget that this man had been accused of rape. So I would say like, I'd heard those stories, but didn't really wrestle with them. Just sort of like, ugh. like a lot of people just like, that's a thing that I'm hearing about. I always say somewhere between zero and 60 is when I think I really believed, but I could not tell you at what point it was but at some point the numbers became so overwhelming and also I'm having conversation with friends about it and I'm surrounded by some really incredible women who have talked to me about sexual assault and and rape and how that works and how women underreport so I knew that was true so it just became clear that like these women are not doing this for clout as we would say now it's not worth it to come out for that there's truth here
1: You are known on your CNN show For having difficult to have conversations. I wanted to ask you about conversations you may have had with your own family members about Cosby. And I was thinking about your mom because she's basically the same age, I think, as Cosby is. Yeah, they were both born the same year. And she spent, you know, her whole career working in education, universities, publishing. What did she have to say to you about Cosby if and when you had those conversations with her or told you you were making this documentary? So she's known since the very beginning I was making this documentary and she was always
2: clear that it was gonna be a, like a tough slog, like a tough road ahead and that she believed I could do it. I, ha- I have one of those moms that nobody has more belief in the, me than my mom, but my mom also lets me know when she thinks like, you gotta take care of yourself. She could see that it was wearing on me. We worked on this for like, f- f- this, From beginning to now, like almost four years, but like really actively in the last two years. And it was a tough slog and it was hard on me. And there was dark corners where I was like, why did I do this? She could see that it was weighing on me. But the moment I showed her the first cut, she was so proud of the fact that like specifically of how it was put together, that it felt like something. You know how entertainment works. Sometimes you make a thing and your friends and family see it. Well, good for you for making a thing. I know it's hard to make a thing, but I think she was really clear that it felt like I made it. It wasn't a thing that I was sort of like just pasting together or felt like I had been assigned to do, that my voice came through and the way that I talk about things came through. So she was always on board, but aware of what the conversations were going to be in certain aspects of the Black community because of it. But she, yeah, she's been clear that she's never been more proud of me than with this project.
1: It, It is a tremendous project. I urge everyone to see it. And there is a line in the series where you say, there were times when I was making this show that I wanted to quit. And I just want to say thank you for not quitting, for pushing through and making something that is creating a cultural conversation in and of itself. Congratulations and shout out to Oakland USA, which you're wearing that sweatshirt. I'm sitting in Oakland right now. I live here as well. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) We probably could have gotten two tin cups and a piece of string together and just had the conversation that way. Thanks so much. Take care, Camille.